you have your Bible, uh, you can turn with me to one verse of Scripture this morning, John 14 and verse 6. We are coming back to our series today entitled Lies About God, where we have confronted some of the most prevalent lies in the culture and that are also seeping into the church, lies such as God does not exist, that's the lie from atheism. Jesus is a socialist, that's the uh, lie from the left. The lie that says that uh, God is gay, we saw that one, debunked that one. The lie that says God won't give you more than you can handle, that's the lie from the prosperity preachers. Then we looked at uh, also the lie that says God helps those who help themselves last time. Today, we're going to look at the lie that says there are many ways to God. John 14 and verse 6. Lee Strobel was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune and a smug atheist. But his life was upended when his wife Leslie started going to church, heard the gospel, and responded by giving her life to Christ. Lee was surprised at the immediate and positive changes that he saw in his wife, Leslie. And still, though, he remained skeptical about the Bible and the claims of Jesus. And so he decided to take his journalistic expertise and embark on a thorough two-year investigation of Christianity. And he says in his book that initially uh, he thought he could disprove Christianity, but in the end, he too was converted under the tremendous weight of overwhelming historical and scientific evidence in favor of the Bible. The result today is that he has published many of his case books, Case for Faith, Case for Christ, Case for a Creator. I would recommend them to all of you. And those are all bestsellers, and they have helped bolster the faith of millions but in one of his books, he readily admits that before he became a Christian, he disliked one verse of Scripture above all else. And that was John 14, 6. He said he hated this one the most. And here's what John 14, 6 says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many of you know it. You've memorized it. He said about that verse, this was the statement I found most offensive. It's one thing to claim to be a way to God, but the way? He said, as an atheist, I thought, that sounds pretty intolerant. Now, it turns out that many people today believe the same as Lee Strobel once did. Now, technically, this doctrine is called pluralism. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, here's the idea. As you see those many paths going up to the top of the mountain, and there's God, pluralism says that it's the belief that all religions or faiths are equally valid paths to, of God, no matter how contradictory they may be in their basic tenets. And what I mean by that is that when you examine the core beliefs of the big three, Islam, Christianity, and Hinduism, they all contradict 
each other in what they say is the human condition and the way of salvation. But pluralism says, just set all of that aside, and as long as you're sincere in what you believe and don't hurt anybody, then God will make a way for you. Gandhi was probably one of the first to introduce this idea to the West. And here's what Gandhi said, quote, If a man reaches the heart of his religion, he has reached the heart of the others too. There is only one God and many paths to Him. When we talk about this subject, we also have to mention the queen of daytime talk, Oprah Winfrey. This is the religion of Oprah. She probably did more to popularize this view than anybody else. She said, quote, One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there is only one way. Actually, she said, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. And she said that she grew up a Baptist. It reminds me of a bumper sticker that I saw while I was cruising around Asheville. It was a Actually, one of those Subarus. <laughs> no offense if you drive a Subaru, but it's just an Asheville thing. Subaru, five million bumper stickers on the back, right? And one of them on there, God is too big to fit into one religion. Charles Templeton, who once preached alongside Billy Graham in the late 40s and 50s, Later in his life, he deconverted from Christianity, became apostate, but he wrote this in his book, Farewell to God. He said, quote, Christians are only a small minority in the world. Approximately four out of every five people on earth believe in gods other than the Christian God. That's billions of people who revere or worship more than 300 gods. Are we to believe that only Christians are right? Now, this belief has moved from the culture into the church. Because just last year, 2022, Barna Research did a survey of a thousand Christian pastors from across seven different denominations, and they asked them the question, do you believe Jesus is the only way to salvation? And nearly a third, 30%, answered no. That's pastors. If you ever hear a pastor say that and you're in a church service, get up and walk out. Your brain will thank you later. But today I'm going to be debunking this popular lie which says there are, quote-unquote, many paths to God. We're going to be breaking down that statement of Jesus that we read, John 14, 6, probably one of his most popular and well-known sayings. Many today believe it to be arrogant and intolerant but in that one declaration, Jesus, I think, gives three lines of evidence that demonstrates why He is the only way of salvation. The first reason is this. Only Jesus restores the way to God. Only Jesus restores the way to God. And we can see that in the first part of that phrase. I am the, what church? Way. The first reason why Jesus is the only way of salvation is because He is the only one who solved humanity's greatest problem. And it's not knowledge, uh, it's not economic, it's not political. Man's greatest problem is spiritual. It's a three-letter disease called sin. A lot of people try and airbrush over it. Some preachers are afraid to talk about it. But it's sin. 
And in order to fully grasp our predicament, what we need to do is go back to the dawn of time when the first two humans enjoyed fellowship with God in a perfect garden. You'll remember that before Adam sinned, he enjoyed three special privileges with God. His Creator. He enjoyed God's love. That speaks of relationship. We read in the text of Adam and God walking in communion together. He also knew God's law. God expressed to him His one rule in the garden. You can have all of this, just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You give man one rule and he can't even keep that. He knew God's love, he knew God's law, but then he also possessed God's life, eternal life. So we see in the garden relationship, we see a stewardship that Adam was to keep the law, and then we also see worship, that he was to enjoy God's presence and abundant blessings and and be in eternal worship with God. But we know that when Adam fell and he rebelled against God, he lost all three of those privileges. His fellowship with God is now broken. Remember in the Bible it says that he ran and he hid from God after the first sin. His knowledge of God was now corrupted because he had believed the lie of Satan. And then his life was also shattered because we read about the judgment that would befall man in chapter 3 of Genesis that he would die immediately in his spirit and then progressively in his body. So Adam lost for all of humanity, love, law, and life and was replaced with alienation, ignorance, and death. Now Romans 5.12 summarizes the human condition. Therefore... Uh, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 Isaiah 59 and verse 2 But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. 1 John 1.8 Pins everybody to the wall, doesn't it? If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So our chief problem is that sin has caused a breach in the relationship between man and God. Are we all on the same page with that class? And because of the fall, we are alienated from God, we are ignorant of God, and we are condemned to death, both physical and spiritual. That's our plight. That's our default position when we are born into this world. Meditation's not going to fix it. The Eightfold Path isn't going to help you. Yoga won't get you higher to heaven. What we need is not a guru. We need a Savior. And that's the good news of John 14, 6, is that Christ reverses all of these tragic consequences, and in Christ, everything that mankind lost is restored. Instead of alienation... We can have fellowship. I am the way back to God, right? Instead of ignorance of God's ways, Jesus says, I'm the truth. And instead of receiving a death sentence, He says, I am the life. It's all right there. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the only way to God because He alone died for the sins of the world. I hope that I make this so elementary this morning that even the smallest child can understand it. 
If it seems like I'm putting the cookie on the bottom shelf, it's because you have to do that today in a culture that denies the very notion of truth. Let me remind you, we live in a generation where they actually believe you wake up one morning and you can think you're a different sex and all of reality is just going to accommodate your delusion and go along with it. That's why I have to put the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning to help people to understand what's man's predicament and what's the way to God. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 through 6, talks about Christ being the only way. For there is one God and how many mediators? One mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom, what's that last part, for all. Not just the Baptists, uh, not just the Methodists or uh, the, the Pharisees or the people who stand on their head the right way and pray the right words or those who get the merit badge in vacation Bible school because they memorized so many verses or gave so much money to the church. No, he says, for all. People complain that there's only one way. Oh, you Christians are so... Uh, you're you're so narrow-minded, you're so bigoted. Hey, let me remind you that my condition is hopelessly lost without Jesus. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I can't get myself to God. I don't deserve anything from God. He doesn't owe me anything, so it's amazing that He would even give me away. So notice here, as fully God and fully man, Jesus is the only one who could bridge the gap. Notice the slide that shows how Jesus' cross, uh, it, it makes a bridge, if you will, makes a way from fallen man to holy God. And because He's 100% man and 100% God, with one arm He can lay hold of estranged humanity, and with the other uh, He can uh, make a way to the Father, and He bridges that gap between heaven and earth, between sinful man and holy God. And friend, listen to me. Why is Jesus different? Why is Jesus the only way? Because of one word, cross. The cross is the difference maker. Jesus is utterly unique among all the other religious leaders because Jesus alone took a cross and climbed the hill of Calvary and died for you and me. That's what makes Him different. That's what makes Him exclusive. That's what sets Him head and shoulders and even puts Him in a different league completely than anybody else who claimed to be some kind of religious leader. Let's talk about some of those religious leaders, by the way. What about Muhammad? Do you know that the symbol of Islam should be the sword? Because rather than give life, Muhammad took life. Historians estimate that Muhammad killed 3,000 people in his many raids and holy wars. He, he condoned jihad or holy war against infidels. In fact, in the Quran, Surah 9 verse 5, it says, Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them. Whenever you hear the news media or the politicians saying that Islam is a religion of peace, friend, they haven't read the Quran. I've read it. It is not a religion of peace. It is a religion that gives their adherents permission to go and kill or behead anybody who doesn't bow the knee their insane belief system. You know what else Muhammad 
condoned not only slaying the pagans, he condoned taking slaves for spoil. Surah 841. And we hear today about how Christianity is the white man's religion that led to all kinds of subjugation and oppression in the world. What about Islam? They still keep slaves today. Muhammad condoned beating disobedient women. They say the Bible's outdated because it asks women and men to submit in marriage. Surah 434, you can beat a disobedient wife. You can also have as many wives as you want according to Surah 4 and verse 3. And do you know that Muhammad, before he died, he said that he could not save anybody? He said, I am a human like you. Not much hope there, is it, friend? What about Buddha? You see big fat Buddha every time you go to the Chinese buffet. He's sitting there greeting you at the door. Reminding you, hey, you better not go back and get another plate or you end up looking like me. You know, Buddha didn't offer any hope to the human condition either. He devised something called the Eightfold Path, which if you follow it is supposed to remove all desire. But it's interesting that you have to have the desire to remove desire. So inherently it's self-contradictory in its own system. But Buddha said this, In reality, there are no beings to whom the Buddha can bring salvation. Sorry, I'm not following that guy. He can't help me. He can't save me. He can't deal with a lecherous, sinful heart. You see, other religious leaders compared to Jesus are drowning in their own sin and need a lifeguard. They are blind guides who are groping in the darkness who need the light of the world to show them the way. They are slaves to the cruel taskmaster of death. None of these religious leaders found a way out of death but only one Jesus Christ died and rose again and came out of the tomb in power and in victory on that third day. That's the ultimate trump card, and I'll get to that a little bit later. And finally, when you think about man-made religion versus the gospel of grace, that's the separator between the way, the truth, and the life, and the rest of the world. Christianity has something that no other religion has, and it's called grace. Man-made religion says do, try, behave. But the gospel of grace says done, trust, Believe, you see, religion is what sinful people try and do for a holy God. But the gospel of the good news of grace is what a holy God has already done for sinful people. Muhammad says, if you want to enter into paradise, strap a bomb to your chest and go blow up an infidel. But my God, my Savior, Jesus, He took a cross and He strapped it to His back and He did what nobody else could do, what only He was qualified to do. And He went and He gave His life for people who would spit at Him and hate Him and beat Him and pluck out His beard and say, I reject that kind of love. And yet He died for Him anyway. You see, friend, that's the difference. When I look at all the religious leaders, mine, my Savior, He's got something that nobody else does. He's got a cross. Why? Muhammad didn't say, for God so loved the world. Buddha didn't say, I've come to seek and save 
that which is lost. You see the difference? Oh, it's the chasm of infinity. Sinner, you've never been loved to death like you have by Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That's why Jesus is the only way. That's why He's the only answer and the only Savior because He's love poured out on a cross saying to the world, I loved you this much. That's my God. That's my Savior. The difference is human achievement or divine accomplishment. What can I do to make myself commendable to God or go ahead and announce my spiritual bankruptcy and say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the difference. Friend, don't believe the fake news. Don't drink the Kool-Aid today. There's not many ways to God. There's one way. And the difference is the cross. See, all these other religions, they don't have a cross. They don't have blood. They don't have atonement. And therefore, they don't have salvation. That's the difference with Christianity. A cross and blood and sacrifice. Many years ago, there was an anonymous writer who explained exactly what I'm preaching to you this morning with a clever parable. It's called the parable of the pit. Here's the story. Listen carefully. A man was walking in the woods when he fell in the pit and couldn't get out. One by one, passers-by walked by the man in the hole and shouted down to him as he cried up for help. The first to come by was a Buddhist. He said, Sir, you only think you're in a pit, but it's all an illusion. I will teach you how to meditate your way into a new state of mind. A Muslim came along and looked down in the pit, and he said, Huh, this pit must be God's will for you. If you will pray five times a day facing Mecca, maybe Allah will have mercy on your soul. A Pharisee came by and he heard the man crying, but he only ignored him. And then he said, I wondered who sinned, this man or his parents, that he fell into this hole. A scientist came along, but all he was able to do was to measure the depth of the pit and calculate the necessary force required to pull him out. Then an evolutionist addressed the man at the pit, saying, This is part of the natural process of selection. Only the strong survive, and will you die in that pit, you won't produce any more pit-falling offspring. Yeah, let it sink in. An optimist came by and said, at least your pit isn't deeper. Things could always be worse. A pessimist came by and said, oh, look over there. I think it's going to rain. You better get ready. Things down there are about to get way worse. And then the county inspector came by and said, do you have a permit to dig that pit? Finally, Jesus came by and he saw the man in the pit and he yelled down to him, Do you want to be free? The man said, Yes. And then Jesus asked him, Do you trust me? The man said, Yes. And then Jesus yelled down to him, Move over. I'm taking your place. And Jesus got down in the hole. He let the man stand on his shoulders and climb free, and Jesus took the man's place in the hole. That's the difference. Number one, Jesus, only Jesus, 
restores the way to God. Number two, I want you to see this morning, only Jesus represents the truth of God. So we see, first off, I am the way. Then notice the next part of that phrase, I am the truth. The second reason why Jesus is the only means of salvation is because, listen, He's the standard and source of truth. Not the Wall Street Journal. Not social media. Certainly not the philosophy and the spirit of the age. Truth is not a system, philosophy, or a subjective feeling. Truth is a person. And His name is Jesus. Just listen to His claims. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. John 1 and verse 14, in the prologue of that gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and what church? Truth. John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. John 18 and verse 37, he's talking to Pilate here at his trial. Jesus says, for this cause I was born, and for this reason I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. A lot of people won't accept Jesus because as I already alluded to, we're living in a generation that believes truth is squishy and subjective. You hear this saying, don't you? Well, that's good for you. You've got your truth, and I've got my truth, as if truth is determined by the individual, by whether they woke up that morning on the right or the wrong side of the bed. You have your faith, and I have mine, and if I don't like your truth, or if I don't like my biology, I can just change it, and all the universe is going to realign according to my quote-unquote truth. That's the world that we live in. And to that person I ask, okay, you have your truth and I have my truth, but what if my truth says that you're inferior and I have the right to wipe you off the face of the earth? There's a group of people that did that called the Nazis. Their truth was eradicate six million Jews from the face of the earth. I don't think that argument works very well in a world like ours. Amen? So what is the truth about truth? Well, here it is, exactly from the Bible. Truth is exclusive, it's universal, it's unchanging, and it's not determined by feelings. Let me go through each one of these very quickly. Truth, by definition, excludes all non-truth. That's why 2 plus 2 can only have one answer, always and forever. It's four. That's why... H2O can only ever be the one chemical makeup of water. It's exclusive. So when something is true, by default, the opposite is false. Truth is also true for all people at all times and all places. Truth is universal. And for 6,000 years, it was universally recognized and accepted until about 15 minutes ago that there's only two sexes, male and female. And that marriage was defined by a man and a woman in monogamous relationship. All these definitions and truths that have been universally and exclusively recognized by humanity, now, in a post-modern, post-Christian world, we've decided, and Psalm 2 says, to cast off all restraint because we don't want God to be our God. We want to make our own truth and our own way of doing things. And friends, that never 
runs, ends up well. Just read the history books. Truth is true for all people at all times and all places. Listen to this. Truth doesn't change either. Now, our experience or our grasping of truth changes. That's why they have to revise the science books every few years. Earth has always revolved around the sun. What changed was our understanding of that, not the truth itself. And lastly, truth is not determined by feelings. Sincerely believing something doesn't make it true any more than disbelieving in something sincerely makes it false. Think about this. If we took a vote and a billion people on earth voted to suspend the law of gravity for one hour, how many of them would follow through by walking off a ten-story building? Anybody want to vote for that? The answer is obvious. You know why? Because the law of gravity operates no matter what anybody thinks or how anybody feels. Honey, I'm sorry, but truth is just what you have to deal with. And we've got too many spineless, gutless, helpless preachers who won't stand on the truth of the Word of God and say, this is God's Word. It's settled in heaven. You can either break it or you can break yourself upon it. But here's what God's Word says. Now deal with it. You see, my job as a preacher isn't to stroke egos, isn't to even necessarily make people feel good in their sin. My job as a preacher is to open the relevant and real Word of God and let its light shine in the darkness of your heart. And whatever God exposes, that's between you and Him. But the good news is, there's a Savior. There's grace. There's mercy. There's life change available. But it's only available in one name. And His name is Jesus. I hope I'm helping somebody today. Please know that I love you. I'm not trying intentionally to step on toes or anything like that. But this right here is a, is a message that this world will cancel you for. They don't like this. But truth is not determined by what we like or dislike. Dave Hunt said this, Everyone knows that to fly an airplane or practice medicine or even bake a cake, one must follow specific procedures. One can't even play a game without rules. Then why attempt to avoid the laws of logic that God has set up in the spiritual realm? Sincerity won't get astronauts to the moon. Nor will it prevent arsenic from killing the person who ingested it by mistake. Yoga won't pay a traffic ticket. It makes no sense to set out from New York to Los Angeles without a map. What folly it would be to refuse a map because they're so restrictive and insist that any road in any direction will do. How much greater, he said, is the folly of insisting that any road sincerely followed will take one to heaven. This, all, this whole subjectivism, pluralism thing, it sounds good like the philosophers sitting on top of Mars Hill in Acts 17. They just waited around. and It sounds good on a news feed, on a tweet. It sounds good on a meme. But when you actually get to thinking about it, we don't live this way. What do I mean by that? You don't land planes on the basis of subjective truth. That pilot 
better believe objectively in the laws of physics or we're going to be a grease spot on the runway. You ever been to get a surgery? We don't do open heart surgeries on the basis of subjective truth. Well, I think this organ today is identifying as a liver when it's supposed to be a heart. What's well, a few organs among friends? We don't live this way except when it comes to spiritual matters and then all of a sudden man wants to take his brain out and say, oh, the rules have changed. We can get to God any way we want. No. That's a delusion. That's a lie. That's something crafted by Satan to keep people deceived. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, pastor, I hear you. Amen. What about those who've never heard Christ or the gospel? I get this question all the time. If Jesus is the only truth, the only way, then what about those, pastor, who never hear about Him? Isn't it unjust of God to condemn the pygmies in Africa, to condemn them to hell for not believing and receiving a Jesus that they've never known or never heard of? You ever hear that before? Well, that's a zinger. Sometimes it'll leave you speechless. What do I say? Well, let me give you some truth on this. Romans 1.20 says that everyone can deduce from general revelation, that is the creation, that with common sense there is a creator. Romans 1.20 says we're all without excuse. We can look out at the starry hosts above or the moral law within, and we know there's a God. All you have to do is observe the complexity and beauty of creation to know there's a creator. But man's problem, the Bible says, is that God, is that man would rather have an idol than a sovereign. Something that we've made, that we can manage, that we can tell it what it ought to be. We don't want God to be our God. We want to be the God of God. But the Bible also says that God is not only seeking after people, but that those who search for Him can know Him. Acts 17 verse 27 assures us that God is not distant. We should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, although Paul says He is not far from any one of us. Write this scripture down, Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, And you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. Can God be known? Yes. Is God seeking and searching? Yes. If a person truly desires to know God, I believe that God will make Himself known to them. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, because I've read the Bible. There are several examples in the Bible of total pagans coming to faith. Think about Rahab, the harlot who lived in the walls of Jericho. And yet, when the spies came to look at the city, she helped them. And the Bible says in James 2 that she showed faith. And that I believe that she was saved. Think about the Magi who traveled across a desert following a star just to worship Jesus, even though their background was paganism in Babylon. God revealed Himself to them. What about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert there in the book of Acts. Today, God is reaching Muslims. Did you know that? God is reaching Muslims with dreams. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That they can 
kick the church out of their country. They can burn the church down. They can collect up all the Bibles, but yet you know what you can't do? You can't pin down the Holy Spirit of God. And even in some of these most repressed, backwards, almost medieval-like mindset of these countries, God breaks through the darkness and speaks to these people in unmistakable ways. Amen, yeah. God is reaching Muslims with dreams. Missionaries, praise God, are still being sent out across the world. Some of them in my own family. And do you know the Bible today is available in over 1,600 different languages? There's more access today to the Word of God than there's ever been in the history of mankind. So don't say that God isn't reaching people. Now often, this question is used by skeptics because they want to keep God at a distance. They think it would be unjust for God to deny an aborigine access into heaven. But listen to me, friend. When you stand before God, you'll not be judged on the basis or decision of somebody else. You'll be judged on the basis of the light that was given to you. What did you do with Jesus? What do you do with the Bible? What do you do with a convicted heart? Not on what some African all the way across the world did or didn't do with Jesus, but what did you do? And you've got to push the issue back to their heart. And think about this. The gospel is such an inclusive invitation for all who will believe. That sound inclusive to you? we got a culture that's in love with diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's nothing more inclusion than, inclusive than the love of God. But there's only one way to receive. That's through Jesus Christ. An inclusive invitation, but an exclusive Savior. I often pose this question to skeptics from time to time. I would say this. If I could show you evidence that would demonstrate that Christianity is true, would you repent and trust in Jesus? Oftentimes the answer is no. And you know what that tells me? They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. I believe anything, do anything, accept anything that will make me happy, but I don't want the truth. That's a sad place to be in. But friend... If you are open-minded about the truth, if you are searching for the truth, it is inevitable that that path will lead you to the feet of one man, the man, Christ Jesus. Number one, only Jesus restores the way to God. Number two, only Jesus represents the truth of God. And then number three, only Jesus' resurrection proved He was the Son of God. I mentioned this just a little bit ago. A third reason we know that Jesus alone is the way of salvation is because, hey friend, there's an empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. Friend, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if He never rose from the grave, then our faith is foolish, our life is futile, and our death is final. But thanks be unto God for the empty tomb. Amen? We either have an empty tomb or an empty faith but Jesus did not uh, just defeat death 
He overcame Satan. He overcame the grave. He overcame the weapon's greatest enemy. And he used it against him to wrest victory from him. And the resurrection is the ultimate trump card in determining who is right. Will the real Jesus please stand up? He's the one with an empty tomb. He's the one with nail scars. He's the one who walked with the Emmaus Road disciples. And when he broke bread in front of them, they said, we got a case of holy heartburn because he's gone from our midst. He's the one that shows up by the bed. He's the one that's at the graveside of a believer. He's the one who's got the power that when it comes to death, you don't have to be afraid, child of God, because you know the one who's defeated it. And he'll be there on the other side to let you out. That's enough to make anybody shout. Listen to what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 11, 25. Romans 1 and verse 4. Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of God or the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And then the apostles preach in Acts 4. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Are you convinced yet? You know, one of the things that the History Channel, Discovery Channel likes to do is they like to uh, poke holes in the Bible. Skeptics watch a, a, a YouTube video, five-minute YouTube video that supposedly debunks the Bible, and they got the answer that they want. They, it's, a, it's an echo chamber. They don't want God, and they're looking for evidence to prove their belief so that they can keep Him out. I hear this all the time. I watched a video on YouTube, preacher, and it said the Bible's not reliable. Oh, really? You think I hadn't heard that one before? Listen to this. If you take the Bible and you stack it up against secular history, the Bible blows it all out of the water. Let's take two individuals. Alexander the Great, Jesus. How do they compare in the historical record? Look at this. Josh McDowell says that the witness evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus is massive. Compared to the evidence of other events from the ancient world, it is overwhelming. He says all four Gospels were written within 60 years of the resurrection of Jesus by men who were willing to suffer and die for what they witnessed. While the two earliest biographers for Alexander the Great, Plutarch and Arian, wrote more than 400 years after Alexander's death in 323 B.C., and yet their early writings are generally accepted as trustworthy by historians. And yet the Bible is coming one generation after Jesus, 60 years, by eyewitnesses who are willing to go to the grave for what they saw and what they felt and what they believed and what radically changed them. Why can't we use the same level of standard that we do in other realms for the Bible? Journalist Lee Strobel makes this comment. He said, if you were to call all of the Easter eyewitnesses referenced in the New Testament into a court of law, that's 515, by the way. He said, if you were to call them into a, a court of law to be cross-examined and each were to give 15 minutes of their testimony of what they saw in Easter Sunday and the days after, he said that you would be there from Monday morning to Friday evening listening 
all, all account, after listening, he said, to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? you got skeptics like Thomas and like James and like Paul who gave their life for the gospel. Paul didn't even want to be a Christian. And God zapped him on the Damascus road and made him an apostle and a preacher and a church planner. And friend, nobody dies for what they know to be is a lie. And all of these guys gave their lives. You see, men will die for a conviction, but they won't die for a concoction. Let me finish with this. I'll tell you an interesting story. A few years ago, I went to a pastor's conference up at the Cove, Billy Green Cove, right out here in Black Mountain, exit 55, off I 40. Beautiful place. Awesome food. It always goes back to food, doesn't it, Brother Stan? But it's basically a, pre- a preacher's conference they were having up there where, you know, they get 200 pastors together, they feed them, they preach to them, they get them all charged up, you know, they go back into their churches. And while I was here at this event, I met Billy Graham's grandson, a man named Will Graham. He has his own evangelistic ministry. He goes around the world preaching the gospel. But he's also the CEO over the cove. And I got to talking to him, and we were fast friends. The more we were talking, the more we noticed that we had a lot, a lot of things in common. And he said, uh, he said, Derek, he said, how would you like to go? and see my granddaddy's office here. I said, what? He said, this is not something that's open to the public. He said, but if you're interested, we can get you a tour behind the scenes, and I can get you in to Billy Graham's office. It's up on the third floor. We don't allow the public to go in. He said, but if you'll be here at such and such a time, meet my assistant at the elevator, she'll guide you up. I didn't have to pray about it. You know? There are some things I said, wow, that's, that's a God thing. So I showed up. I was 15 minutes early. I was waiting on that assistant. She showed up. She said, are you Mr. McCarson? I said, yes. She said, follow me. Got in an elevator and went up to the top floor. We got to this long hallway. Into the hallway was a door. She said, stand back, Mr. McCarson. She said, I need to put in a code. She punched in a code on the keypad. Opened up that door. And it was like a vista opened up when we went in that room. A huge office. Huge oak desk sitting there. Walls of books. A huge window that opened up to the mountains. I mean, what of you? In front of the window was a praying stool where apparently Mr. Graham prayed as the light would come in on those windows early in the morning. She said, you want to see Billy Graham's Bible? <laughs> I said, do I? She said, this is one of his Bibles. And she brought it out. She had a pair of gloves on. She brought that Bible out. She said, she was leafing through it. She said, look, you can even see where he wrote. Gave his own note, his highlights. And I was astounded. I was blown away. And as I was walking away from that place that day, and I was thinking about what a blessing it was to be taken into the inner sanctum to see Billy Graham's office. The Holy Spirit tapped me on the shoulder and said, Yeah, 
but I've done a whole lot more for you and my son Jesus. Amen. You see, here's the, here's the final truth I want to leave you with. If that's impressive, the only way that I got to go to see the Father's office was because I had a relationship with the Son and He arranged it so that I could gain access, friend. The only way to gain access to the Father is through the Son and His name is Jesus Christ. And going to a little office is one thing. But being welcomed into the gates and the glory of heaven, that's something you don't earn and you can't ever deserve. But that's grace. That's why Jesus is the only way. He restores the way of God. He represents the truth of God. And His resurrection proves that He's the Son of God.